week two, ending our summer series. We've been in the Psalms, and we've transitioned now not to studying prayers, which are the Psalms, but actually learning how to pray. And we're in the Lord's Prayer for that. Last week, we spent most of our time uh, looking at the context leading up to the Lord's Prayer. What we saw in that is that Jesus teaches us, to, before he teaches us how to pray, he teaches us how not to pray. And he gives us two examples, right? The hypocrite. He says, do not pray like hypocrites because they pray not to get God, but they pray to try to use God to get what they really want. And then the other example were the pagans, to not pray like the pagans because they go to God in prayer on the basis of their own performance, seeking to unlock some blessing that they want or they think they deserve because of the way that they've lived and obeyed God. And then we ended with the beginning of the Lord's Prayer, the astonishing reality that Jesus tells us what the basis of prayer is. It's not our performance for God, but it's his loving pursuit of us to the extent that he adopts us into his family, that now we, like Jesus, have God as our Father. That we have this privilege and we have that relationship because the true Son lost the favored relationship with his Father on the cross. And we saw the evidence of that, that when he was on the cross, he did cry out to his, to his father, but he didn't call him father. It's the only time he didn't. He said, my God, my God, because he had lost that privileged relationship so that we never would, so that we would have that favor and that relationship forever. Which brings us to the part of the Lord's Prayer we'll be in this morning. We're going to be hanging out in chapter 6 of Matthew, verse 10. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So if you can and are able, please stand for the reading of God's word. We're going to keep on, although we'll dissect the Lord's Prayer, we're going to keep on reading the full context so we understand uh, where we are in his word. Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 15. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, you be seated. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would open up our hearts this morning to receive your word, to understand it, but also to be changed by it. Pray your spirit would move and work as you promised to do this morning through your message, through your word. Help us to become more and more like Jesus. But we can't do that on our own, so we ask that you would produce it through. Uh, what we hear this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
All right, as we exposed last week, many of us start our prayers not with praise, but with petitions. And while there are times when that's appropriate, we see that often in the Psalms, Jesus is showing us how to pray, and he's showing us that the cause for us to start with petitions rather than praise is that we so often forget the wonderful relationship we have with God. Therefore, he teaches us to start our prayers with our Father, remembering that relationship in heaven. And when we do that, that will naturally lead us into adoration and praise for who he is and for what he's done to cause that relationship. So now that that's established, surely now we get to pray for our needs, right? I mean, surely now we go to him with our petitions to to talk to our Father about our wants and our desires. I mean, the God of the universe, the creator and sustainer of all that exists is our Father. And we can come to him as children. It seems logically then to follow that at this point in our prayer that we would go to him as the one who cares for us and can do something about our situation and has the power to do that with our pressing needs. And while that's coming next week, that's not quite where we go yet. Jesus actually teaches us that there's something more important. There's something more important. There's something that we need more than our, our needs and our petitions to be answered. He's teaching us that to pray for our Father's kingdom to come, for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, and for independent, free, modern Americans, for us, <laughs> uh, this may be the most baffling and difficult prayer for us to understand and then to genuinely, honestly pray. See, I think if we're honest, this is such a foreign and strange hard idea for us because of the world and the culture that we live in, right? A world and a culture that's main narrative, that main, main message for us is to do whatever makes you happy. You do you, right? Take care of yourself first. Self-care is not just one of the many narratives that our culture gives us. It's the most important one. It's the primary one. In other words, the message of the culture that we breathe in, that we live in, is you pursue your kingdom and your will first. Being true to yourself, however the culture defines that, and your desires is the most important thing that we are told to pursue. It's probably part of the reason that most of our prayers start with and are majorly filled with our wants and our desires, our perceived needs, and have very little to do with God and who he is and what he's done for us. I mean, we are halfway through the Lord's Prayer, and we haven't prayed for anything directly regarding ourselves yet. Halfway through the Lord's Prayer, Jesus teaching us how to pray, and we haven't prayed for anything directly affecting or about us. And that tells us something about the purpose of prayer, and it tells us something about the true need that we have. It also arrogantly flies in the face of the cultural narrative and motto of do whatever makes you happy. Have you ever thought about that motto? It assumes a lot. There's a lot of assumptions behind that motto to live this way. I'll point out a few. One, it assumes that you know best and that you can actually, that, and actually can determine choices what would bring you lasting happiness. 
To know that would mean you would have to know quite a lot about the future. And therefore, you can make decisions simply according to your desires at the time without any need for a check or a challenge from an outside source. Another assumption that makes is that your personal happiness is the ultimate goal in life. And that the way to get that is by directly pursuing happiness, not something else. That the way to get happiness is by pursuing happiness, not happiness is a product of pursuing something else. It assumes that there's nothing loftier and more noble or healthy or important for us to pursue other than our own happiness. For that to be the ultimate goal, our immediate happiness in this life assumes little, that there's little to no hope beyond this life. And lastly, it assumes that you pursuing your own happiness in the now will not negatively affect or hinder anyone else from pursuing their own happiness in the moment and in the now. In fact, it doesn't have anyone else in mind at all, right? It's all about you. It's all about your personal immediate happiness. See, when you have a Christian worldview, it's easy to poke holes in this approach to life. The Bible calls us to pray for our Father's will be done, not our own. But it's one thing to poke holes in that approach and to clearly state the call of the Bible. It's a whole different thing to actually live according to the call of the Bible rather than the call of our culture, right? If you were to receive my prayer life printed out, it would be a much smaller stack than you probably would assume of papers. Uh, It would also expose that I don't pray as Jesus is teaching us to pray like very often, that I struggle Uh, that it's embarrassingly absent in my prayer life to pray like this. As I said last week, petitions is how I start. Petitions are what caused me to pray, right? What about you? Do you pray like this? Is half of your beginning of your prayer life about not about what you need, about what you want, about your petitions? I mean, why is this kind of praying so absent in our life? So absent in our prayer life. Maybe it's because we've adopted that motto, do whatever makes you happy. I mean, churches are really good at adopting a cultural motto, a motto or narrative from, from the world and just spiritualizing it, right? We just make it spiritual. That the way you get happiness right now in this life is you become a Christian. You get God, right? That's the same narrative. It's just adding God into the equation. Or maybe it's something deeper than that. Maybe the reason why it's so absent from our prayer life is that we've misunderstood the very purpose of prayer at its core. What prayer is meant to do. What, what the purpose of prayer is. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about what the point of prayer is? What the purpose of it is? I mean, Jesus tells us in verse 8 that God our Father already knows what we need before we even ask. What does that make you say when you read that? So what's the point, right? Why pray then? Here I knows, then why should I pray at all? And that's my initial response. Is that not yours? And then the question, why pray, exposes what we think prayer is all about, right? The, the, the great deceased comedian George Carlin, he's an atheist, but he struggled with this idea as well. He has this quote that says, and here's something else, another problem you might have. Suppose your prayers aren't answered. 
What do you say? Well, it's God's will. Thy will be done. Fine. But if it's God's will, and he's going to do what he wants to anyway, why the heck bother praying in the first place? Seems like a big waste of time to me. Couldn't you just skip the praying part and go right to his will? It's all very confusing, right? I mean, that's not, is that not what we feel when we read that he already knows what we need before we ask it? He already knows what we want before we ask. But while that's a good and fair question to say what's the point, it exposes that we don't understand what the purpose of prayer really is. And therefore, in some ways, we don't really understand what living life as a child of God is meant to be like. Perhaps that's why prayer is so difficult for us. Why it can be so boring sometimes. Why it can be so painful to try to drum up to do. Because we have missed, maybe, and misunderstood the purpose of prayer, and we falsely think that it's not worth our time. When you misunderstand the purpose of something... You can think it's not worth your time or it's not working or it's not doing what it's meant to do. If you think a hammer, if you try to use a hammer as a paintbrush, you think this thing sucks as a paintbrush, right? But if you use it for what it's for, it's a great tool. That's what prayer, understanding the purpose of prayer is actually going to unlock for us what it's meant to do and how it's meant to function. What Jesus is showing us here in the Lord's Prayer is that the purpose of prayer is not to change God and his will so that it would align with ours. Rather, the purpose and the design of prayer is to change us and align our will with his. John Stott said the Lord's Prayer is about the decentralization of self. Martin Luther, the reformer, said, by our praying, we are instructing ourselves more than we are instructing God. And Kierkegaard, the theologian philosopher, says, prayer does not change God, but the one who prays. See, we have understood that prayer is about realignment. But where we have misunderstood, we've reversed the order of who needs the realignment. That it's not God to our plan, but it's us to his. And this kind of message is foolishness to a culture that says, follow your heart. It says, do whatever makes you happy because there's no need for realignment. But the Bible tells us that our hearts are deceitful above all things. It tells us that the way that seems right to us actually leads to death in the end. And I will admit, for someone like me who likes control, like, I like to try to control my emotions. I like to try to control my schedule. I like to try to control even the people around me to line up with my plans for the day. Um, telling us, telling you, telling me the purpose of prayer, and therefore to do it this way, does not produce that in your hearts. We need to honestly ask and answer two questions, I think, before we will be prompted to pray for God's will before ours. The first question is this. We have to ask, do we believe in a God who is big enough to contradict my desires and my plans for my immediate happiness? Do we believe in a God who is big enough to contradict my plans and my desires for my immediate happiness? Really what we're asking, is God really God? <laughs> or do we have some version of him in our mind 
that we pick things from the Bible that we like and we leave the other things away that we don't like. In other words, if God is not big enough to contradict, challenge, and ultimately change how you live, then you are not really worshiping or understanding God, but some version you have made up. You cannot pick and choose parts of the Bible or where God reveals himself and who he is and then throw away the other ones and say, those are outdated. Say, those don't apply anymore. You can't pick and choose that. You can't say, I accept God as love, but not as jealous. Or I accept God's grace, but not as sovereignty over my life. Or I accept his mercies are new every morning, but I don't accept his call for me to love my enemies. God is only truly God if he challenges you and your desires. If you do struggle with who he is, if you do struggle with some of his will, that is partly a sign that you've probably encountered the real God of the Bible. And listen to me. If he's big enough to contradict your desires, he's big enough to handle your struggle with who he is. This is not a plea or a call to silence your struggles with who God is. It's a call to bring those to your father, to bring those struggles with who he is to him because he's big enough to handle it. See, he is our father, and everybody who's a parent or has had a parent understands that parents constantly challenge the plans of their kids' wants and desires in the moment, right? I mean, what if a parent never went against their child's will? What if they never made them take the medicine that they don't like the taste of? Or they never determined a bedtime for them to get the amount of sleep that their bodies need despite their emotions in the moment? Never made them eat foods that they don't like when they first taste them. Never restricted how much TV or what TV they watch or what they could be exposed to on the internet. Never made them do their homework and go to school. I mean, the list goes on and on. Being a parent is a daily grind of contradicting your child's will and desires in many ways. And if this is the struggle between an earthly parent and child, how much more do you think that would be a struggle with our perfect heavenly father versus us who are sinful. So the answer to the first question, is God big enough to contradict my desires and well-thought-out plans for immediate happiness? He is. Or he ceases to be God. He has to be. And now the second question that we must ask, the second question that really hinges and really is the one that's going to hinge on whether we are willing to pray this prayer of his will before ours or not. The question is, is he good enough to trust with my life and with my plans? He's big enough to contradict me, but is he good enough to trust with my life and with my plans? God can be big, but if he is not good, I will never run to him. I'll run from him. I will never seek his will and kingdom over mine if he's not good. And to answer this question of God's goodness, we must look at what his kingdom is like and what is his will. And the place where we must clearly see what his kingdom is like is when we look at the one who ushered in the kingdom, its inception into this world, Jesus, the one who's instructing us how to pray. An old professor, uh, seminary professor, Ed Clowney, says, Jesus came as Lord, and in his coming, the kingdom was already present. His miracles were signs of the power of the kingdom. So what did Jesus show us 
about what God's kingdom is like. He showed us it's a place. <clears throat> Didn't expect so early on to get on. It's a place where the sick get healed. It's a place where the blind get sight. It's a place where the lame walk. Where the hungry get food. Where the poor get wealth, where the weak are strong, where the lowly are exalted, where need is replaced by abundance, where prejudice is replaced with unity, and where hate is replaced with love, is what Jesus shows us what the kingdom of God is like. The kingdom of God is ultimately headed towards the restoration of all things. Or as the Jesus Storybook Bible puts it, where everything that's sad becomes untrue. That what we talk about often the last few weeks is this now and not yet reality, where we experience in part now, but we wait and long for when we will experience the consummation of God's kingdom. Jesus is coming into the world and taking on flesh, ushered in the kingdom of God, but when he comes again, will be the fulfillment, the consummation, completion of his kingdom. So partly what we're praying for in his will to be done, for his kingdom to come on earth as is in heaven, is that we're praying for Jesus to come back as part of that prayer, for heaven on earth to take place. But until that happens, we're also praying for his kingdom of grace to continue, to spread, to go farther, to go deeper into our hearts and to spread farther to more people. That's a large part of what Redeemer is about. The heartbeat of Redeemer is the longing that the kingdom of grace go deeper into our hearts in such a way that sends us out that it would go farther into the lives of others here in Edmond. And so part of my prayer is that God would help us do that, that God would use Redeemer and the people here to extend his kingdom of grace but that's only going to happen as it goes deeper into our hearts. So it might sound like a good idea at this point, a good plan, um, maybe even something you want to have happen, that God's kingdom of grace to go farther, but maybe you're still not sure because this is a big prayer, the trust that God's goodness to the extent that you actually pray for his will before your own. When Jesus ushered in the kingdom of God, revealing what it was like, he also showed us what God's will is. And Jesus, who is the Son of God taking on flesh, he did not come just to do miracles. But he actually became weak. He became dependent. He became poor, needy, and vulnerable. Jesus, the Son of God, wrestled with his Father's will. But he always submitted to it. He willingly followed his Father's will perfectly at every single point in his life. You remember Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane? And thinking about what is about to take place and what is about to happen when it gets close to that time? He's overwhelmed with sorrow because of the thought of what he's about to endure and losing the favor and the relationship with his Father by drinking the full cup of wrath. And in that garden, he prays, My Father... There's any other way, if there's any other way to do this besides losing you, let's do it that way. 
But he ended his prayer, not my will be done, but yours. That prayer is a summation of his life. So how do we know if our Heavenly Father is good and trustworthy? We know it because his will was that Jesus would come to the earth he created to usher in the kingdom of God, not through force, power, and might, but through weakness, submission, and sacrifice. Philippians 2 says that he was, Jesus was in the form of God, but did not count God, uh, equality with God something to be grasped. But he let it go, taking the form of a servant, becoming obedient, even obedient to death on a cross. Jesus, the one who always said and lived, not my will, but yours, Father, died in place of the people who always say, not your will, but mine. This is how we know if he is good. This is how we know if his will is trustworthy. It's not on the basis of our desire. It's not on the basis of our circumstances, our understanding. It's on the basis of his love and his will revealed in Jesus. This is why we start our prayers not with your kingdom come, your will be done. Why we start our prayer with our Father. Because it's there that we're reminded what it took for him to become our Father. That's why we start with that and who he is and what he's done for us. Paul says in Romans 8 that our Father has withheld nothing from us because he's given us everything in his Son. So he's not going to withhold anything lesser than that because he's already given us everything. And therefore, we are free to pray for his will instead of ours. Because that was his will, to send his son. So this part of the prayer that Jesus is teaching us is that we are praying for both the advancement of God's kingdom of grace now, while we're also praying for the consummation of Jesus to return, of the kingdom of glory. What happens when we don't start our prayer with who God is, as our Father is powerful and good, what we so often do is we reverse the order that we are given in the Lord's Prayer. We pray our needs, our wants, our wills first before we pray His. We seek to change and align God to our finite, short-sighted plans rather than be changed by His perfect will. And when we do that, what does that produce in us? Does that produce freedom and peace? No, what it does is actually becomes the place where anxiety, control, places that we're easily angered and fearful happen. When's the last time you got angry because you were wanting the kingdom of God to come rather than the kingdom of self? See, when we pursue our kingdom come, our will be done first, we adopt the motto of pursuing what we think will make us happy. And those desires are the source, become the source of our anxiety and our fear, and it's always going to be at the expense of others. But when we meditate on the goodness of our God and lay down the crushing burden that we were never meant to bear of trying to control everything and everyone around us according to our will, when we lay that down, and we give it to the proper place, what produces in us is freedom and rest because we're not carrying the burden that we were never meant to bear. We give it to the place and the one who can. Freedom and rest does not mean that we have a life free of pain, 
hurt, or sorrow. Jesus is the example of that, right? But we are given a strength that goes beyond our pain and our fear and our sorrow. So what we need is to understand the will of God in sending his son to pray this prayer, to follow him, to have his will be done. There's a story, I think, that depicts this pretty well. Uh, It's a famous story of a woman who was a slave her whole life. And she had been auction after auction, an abusive uh, master after abusive master, and she was at an auction again. And you could see the abuse on her body, on her face, the deadness in her eyes in this auction. And she looks down, and she's being auctioned off, and then all of a sudden, from way back in the back, there is a bid from a man who is, that the bid is beyond what anyone would ever pay. It's absurd. And so he ends up getting her and winning. And she walks to him with her head down and the deadness in her eyes from how she's been abused and mistreated. (laughs) And he says, yeah. He says, you're free. He says, you're free to go wherever you want and to do whatever you want. It's as if that idea and those words are so foreign to her, she couldn't hear them. And so her demeanor doesn't change. She's still looking down. The deadness is still in her eyes. And so he says it again. You're free. You're free to go wherever you want, to do whatever you want. And this time she hears and she looks up and she sees in his eyes that he's being honest. He's being real. He's being serious. And she says, I want to go wherever you go. Wherever you go, that's where I want to go. Because someone who would pay that price for my freedom, where else would I want to be? That woman deserved to be free. We don't. And the cost it took for our freedom was infinitely more. So when we understand the cost it took to purchase our freedom, only then will our hearts be changed in such a way to say, your will be done. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. So my prayer is that when this hits, that when we hear God say, you're free, by his grace we would say, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. Man, did not expect.